2 Samuel 11 is where we're going to be this morning. It's part of the story of Bathsheba. There are more passages we could read about Bathsheba, but we're just going to read chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and verses 1 to 27. I, um, I learned studying Bathsheba this week that if we actually said it correctly, it would be Bathsheba or Bathsheba or Bathsheba or Bathshua. That would be more accurate in the Hebrew. And we're saying it really, really bad uh, when we say Bathsheba, but Terry told me it'll just distract people if I don't just say Bathsheba. So we're going to say Bathsheba and be happy with that this morning. But for Advent this year, we've been learning about the four women, the four Gentile women of, uh, uh, that Matthew included in the genealogy of Jesus in his gospel in the first chapter. And the first one that we talked about was Tamar. And we saw how she was mistreated by her father-in-law, Judah, yet she lived with hope, um, uh, hoping to bear a son and continue her dead husband's name and continue the inheritance from her dead husband. The next person we looked at was Rahab, who through faith was redeemed when Jericho was destroyed and found peace among God's people. I remember her name was Arrogance, uh, Trouble, uh, possibly even Chaos, and she married a man whose name seems to mean peace, and she found peace among God's people and became part of the line of Christ of the tribe of Judah. And last week we spent time in the story of Ruth. Ruth doesn't seem, as we understand her, to have scandal associated with her name, but hopefully by the end of last week you understood the scandal that would have surrounded her, but, but God moved in a Moabitess and uh, by his grace in her life, she became a woman who by faith abandoned her people and abandoned her culture to become one of God's people, moving from what I call desolation to celebration at the birth of a son. And in each one of these stories, as I have tried to emphasize uh, each week, we have met women who are linked to scandal. I've used the phrase, uh, whispers of rumor and scandal. And, uh, and often, at least in the cases of Tamar and Rahab, they are women that are often looked down upon by people of the modern church. When we hear the name Tamar, if we know the story, we don't think good things about Tamar. And again, I said, I don't know too, too many people who name their daughters Tamar. I don't know how many people name their daughters Rahab. You don't hear that very often. They're women that are considered kind of dirty and not, not good people. Although God celebrates what he did in their life and brought them into the line of Christ. Today's story of Bathsheba may be the most scandalous of all. As you, as you look at Tamar, eh, that, mm, some things in there that aren't so great. Uh, and again, a lot of people say, a lot of commentators say that uh, her story should not be preached on Sunday mornings, which I find very interesting. Uh, as we look at Rahab, well, at least she turned out okay, uh, but she was a prostitute, so that, that's there. Um, Ruth, again, we don't see as bad of a person, although her culture would probably been looked down upon the most of the four because of where she came from and what her background was. But when we get to Bathsheba, well, that's a lot of scandal. And I was thinking it's kind of like a lot of modern novels, uh, mystery novels, or those kinds. There's adultery, there's rape, there's murder. We read of the powerful abusing. We see the oppressing, uh, we see oppressors and the powerless. We see a woman whose world is turned completely upside down because of the lust of her king. And sadly, as is too often in, in, in our culture today, the finger of blame has been pointed at the woman. She should have not been on the roof taking a bath. It's all her fault. 
If you read Jewish commentators, David gets a complete pass on this, total pass on this, because they just can't handle this guy who is the hero of the Old Testament having actually done anything sinful. In the, in the Muslim world, I think it's very interesting, and I found this to be true with Tamar as well, Tamar and Judah. In the Muslim world, a prophet is beyond reproach. You cannot make any kind of accusation against a prophet, and David is a prophet, just like Judah was a prophet. So in the Muslim world, again, this story doesn't exist. This is a total fabrication because David's a prophet and there's no way that David would have done anything like this. So it's not real. It never happened. And for many Christians, I was, I was raised and a lot of Christians are raised being taught that, that Bathsheba seduced David. Because we just can't deal with David being the problem. And it's the same thing that we see today in our culture when a woman gets raped. Well, if she hadn't been dressed like that. Well, the reality is, it's still wrong. It's still wrong what the man did. And we shouldn't deflect blame. And especially in this story, I don't believe that anything should sit on Bathsheba's shoulders or be written as wrong in her uh, record. And, and so... We have this woman who has been denigrated in the modern church and a finger of blame has been pointed at her, but I want you to remember that Bathsheba is included in Matthew's genealogy. And what's unique about her in Matthew's genealogy is Matthew, as he writes it, he names Tamar, he names Rahab, he names Ruth. And when he comes to Bathsheba, he calls her the wife of Uriah, which points a finger of blame. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit here this morning. But my goal this morning is twofold. First, for us to, cons- to reconsider Bathsheba. I want to present what I would consider to be reasons why Bathsheba was innocent. And I want to, if if this is the only group who believes that Bathsheba, if I get one person to believe that Bathsheba was not at fault, I'll be happy. Um, But I want us to reconsider Bathsheba and her situation. And then I want us to learn from something about her, and that is that Bathsheba was a woman who loved God. And because she loved God, she trusted in his his, uh, covenant faithfulness. Bathsheba was a woman who loved God and trusted in his covenant faithfulness. And I want you to see that about her this morning as well. But we'll read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll read verses 1 to 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, and one said to David, is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? It should have stopped right there. But, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. 
and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot them from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encouraged him. When the wife of Uriah heard that her Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. A few months back, I was uh, with a few pastors from the area. We were having breakfast together. And somebody asked what our preaching plans were for the coming Advent season just kind of threw that out to all of us, and everybody was saying the different things that they were doing. And it came to me, and I responded with my plans, and the first question posed to me was, when are you going to talk about Bathsheba? That was the first thing that came out of anybody's mouth. When are you going to talk about Bathsheba? And I looked at him, and I said, maybe Christmas morning. And, and everybody just went, no. And I... <laughs> I, I didn't actually plan that. But, you know, my point in sharing that little story with you is not to sound critical or judgmental of those other pastors, but simply to illustrate how much negativity and scandal surrounds Bathsheba's story. The immediate response is, that's not appropriate for Christmas morning. But you know what? It actually could be because of the kind of woman that Bathsheba is. And, and in some ways, Mary and Bathsheba are actually, have very similar hearts. But we're going to talk about Mary on Sunday morning next week. But for this morning, we're going to talk about Bathsheba. But because of, again, the negativity and scandal that surrounds Bathsheba, I want to take a little time this morning to make an attempt at redeeming Bathsheba's reputation just a bit. And personally, I believe she was the innocent victim in all of this, and in fact, I would argue that Bathsheba was a godly woman who deeply loved God. She was not a wicked woman. She was a woman who strongly loved God. 
And I hope that what you'll see as we consider her story is that she was innocent and that you will accept the evidence that points away from Bathsheba and puts the blame on David. So here are a few of what I would call evidences that Bathsheba was innocent. Much has been said and written about Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop. What kind of woman bathes on her rooftop? In their culture, all the women bathed on the rooftop, just like all the men bathed on the rooftop. That's where their baths were, were on the rooftop. It was not unusual for her to be up there taking a bath. Some go so far as to suggest that, that Bathsheba knew David would be on the roof. And at that time, that he would be on the roof. And so she intentionally positioned herself to be seen by him because she secretly wanted to be his wife. I'm not making that up. There are people who argue that. that they, they create this very manipulative, evil woman that all the way to the end of her life is, is trying to be the queen. Even though she already is the queen at one point, they, they just pre present her in a terrible way. And, and so, uh, the, I guess what I just want to say, I'm going to skip something here, but what I just want to say is Bathsheba on the rooftop bathing was normal. What was not normal was that David was in Jerusalem and on his rooftop. He should not have been there. And this took place late in the afternoon. And he got up from a nap. He went out on his rooftop and started looking around. The story starts with, if you noticed it, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. The writer of this story starts with the condemnation of David in that he was not at the battle where he should have been. And when he brings Uriah home and tries to get Uriah to take pleasure while he's at home, Uriah says, no, the war's going on. I'm here because you called me here, but I'm not going to have any pleasure because the rest of the army is out there. That should have been a huge rebuke to David. He should have never been in Jerusalem at this time. So the whole bathing thing is a normal practice and if anything, David should not have been up there and he should not have been looking around because he knew bathing on the rooftop was a normal practice. I think it's also helpful to note the significance of this bath. In verse 4, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness we don't initially attach significance to that, but the writer wants you to catch this significance that this was not some random bath that she was taking. It wasn't her weekly bath. And by the way, in the Mideast, they don't take baths every day. It's a, it's a um, if you've ever flown on a plane with people from the Middle East, you know they don't take baths every day. It, they don't smell like we do. Um, uh, they aren't as hung up about not smelling in the Middle East as we are. But this statement that she was purifying herself from her uncleanness shows us that this was not some random or regular bath planned to seduce David, as in fact Bathsheba was performing a ritual bath in, in obedience to the law of God. Every woman was to take a ritual bath following her monthly issue of blood because that made her unclean. And taking the bath when that finished was a ritual cleansing. So she actually was following the law. She was not up there to seduce David. The writer gives us exactly the reason why she was taking that bath. A second issue surrounds whether or not Bathsheba went to David willingly and intentionally. Was she seducing David? We're told in verse 4 that David's men took her. After he asks, who is that woman? 
He did not recognize her, so there was no relationship going on between them ahead of this. He did not recognize her, and he asked his men, who, who is that woman? And, and they told him, one of them told him exactly who she was. She was the daughter of Eliam. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And as I said earlier, it should have just stopped right there. But Bathsheba, there's no evidence that she went to David willingly and intentionally. We're told in verse 4 that David's men took her. Now that word has a couple of major meanings and then some less significant meanings. But it's two major meanings. One is to be summoned. It means that David sent his men and summoned her to come to him. Or it can include the use of force. It's used quite often as a use of force. And it's connected with stealing something or seizing something or seizing someone. So we have in front of us that he either said through these men, bring her to me, and they came and said, the king wants to see you, which would be a summoning. Or it could have been that they came and actually grabbed her and took her to the king. How do we understand that? Well, later when the prophet Nathan rebukes David in chapter 12, and we didn't have time to read that this morning, I'd suggest you go back and read chapter 12 for your own purposes to understand some more of this story. But when, David, when prophet Nathan rebukes David, he tells him the story of a rich man who was entertaining someone coming to see him, and instead of taking a sheep from his own flock, he goes to this poor man who has this lamb that's dear to him. And, and he, he says he, that he feeds it by hand uh, every day and that this lamb drinks from man's cup and that he cuddles this lamb in his arms. It's very, it's very affectionate terms that he uses. And David gets so upset and says, that man's going to die. He needs to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. But he uses this story of this dear, tender relationship to get a response out of David. But the word that he uses is that the rich man took the poor man's lamb. It's the same word. In the same context of the same story, he says the rich man took the poor man's lamb. And he uses that word repeatedly in that part of the story. So in context, I would argue use of force. It wasn't that he just said to the man, I want your lamb. The idea is he stole that lamb from that man. A man did not willingly give up his lamb. Bathsheba is the lamb in that story. And the lamb had no choice. I think it was a use of force in context. I would also suggest, though, that even if it was just a summons, what does a woman do when the king of the country says, I want you to come? And why would she suspect David of anything ill, that he's going to do anything wrong? It would have been weird that she, that she was summoned, but she may have wondered if something had happened to Uriah in battle and the king was going to tell her that her husband was dead. Third, you will never find a place in the story where Bathsheba is ever blamed for what took place. There is no negativity directed at Bathsheba in the story. Nathan strongly condemns David saying, why have you despised the word of the Lord? And then he says, to do what is evil in his sight. I mean, those are the strongest words Nathan could have thrown out at David, but nothing negative is said about or said to Bathsheba. All the blame is placed upon David in the story. And also consider that the law demanded that an adulteress be stoned. It would have been very easy for David to have 
if, if it came out that she was pregnant and blah, 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 and in his, pow, in his position of power to say, she seduced me. I'm, I'm, I'm a man, look at her. I mean, how could I resist her? And she, she seduced me and committed adultery and have her stoned. And that would have been the end of the story. But there was no blame put towards Bathsheba. There was no penalty suggested for Bathsheba. All the blame is placed upon David. It's never suggested in any part of the story that Bathsheba was an adulteress or that she did anything wrong. There's one last consideration I would put out to you regarding Bathsheba, and it's how the writer refers to her and how it points blame at David. Again, David apparently did not recognize her on the rooftop. When he inquires to her identity, he finds out that she's the daughter of actually one of his mighty men, and she's the wife of one of his mighty men. When we read the story, when they identify her, when he says, who's that woman, and they say, that's Bathsheba, from there on in the story to the rest of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, for the rest of the story, until the death of the baby, she is consistently referred to as the wife of Uriah. She's not again referred to as Bathsheba. Five times in those two chapters, she is the wife of Uriah, or uh, and in addition to those five times, wife, that kind of terminology, she, her, but she's not named by her name again until the baby dies and Solomon marries her. That, what that tells you is all of the thrust of the writer is to remind you that Bathsheba was taken illegally, so to speak. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, and they want you to judge David, not Bathsheba. Over and over again, in front of your faces, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. David had no business messing with her. It's a way of emphasizing David's guilt without pointing a finger at Bathsheba. And I would suggest that we should see Bathsheba as an innocent victim, not a manipulative, wicked woman. God, through Nathan, tells David that the sword will never depart from his house. And as you begin to read the story of David going forward from here, it gets really bad to the point that one of his sons rapes one of his daughters in a repeat I believe, of what David did to Bathsheba. Something else I'd like for us to consider this morning is the impact of David's actions upon Bathsheba's person. Because I think it's helpful for us to understand the kind of person she was. We talk about David because David is the center of the story. But I want us this morning just to explore a little bit because we don't talk about Bathsheba and we don't think about Bathsheba in the sense of how David's actions affected her, how David's actions turned her world upside down. And I think it's important to explore this a little bit because it helps us later to understand more of how Bathsheba responded to her situation and the kind of person that she was. So I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about how this kind of behavior by David would have impacted Bathsheba. First, I want us to consider that Bathsheba was a victim of sexual assault. There's no nicer way to put that. Bathsheba was a, a woman who was dedicated to her husband. Bathsheba's History is one of a Gentile, and she's married to a one-time Gentile, Uriah the Hittite. Her grandfather is a man who was David's closest counselor. Up until the revolt by Absalom, her grandfather was the guy who was in David's ear. He gave David advice on everything, and David didn't make too many decisions without his input. 
That was, that was Bathsheba's grandfather. Her father, our great-grandfather, her great-grandfather was that man. Her grandfather was a mighty man. Her father, her husband, was a mighty man. And she was the victim of sexual assault by a man that she trusted, a man with power. And you may already be aware of this, but those who have been abused in this way often blame themselves for what happened and struggling with a sense of shame. Children who have been abused by their parents in this way go through life blaming themselves for what their parents did. If I hadn't been here, if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't said that, if I hadn't, if I hadn't sat on the couch by him. And there's a strong sense of shame. Additionally, these individuals often keenly feel the lack of control in the situation which haunts them afterwards. They go forward oftentimes as control freaks trying to protect themselves because they lost control in one of the most personal ways. That lack of trust develops, especially towards authority, if the offender occupied that kind of position. They live life feeling that they are never truly safe when those who are intended to be protectors become predators. Those are the kinds of things that almost all victims of sexual assault deal with. And Bathsheba, I don't think, would have been any exception. And then on top of that, we shouldn't forget that David murdered Bathsheba's husband. David murdered Bathsheba's husband. And I want you to understand how honorable Uriah was regarding his responsibilities. He was a man of loyalty. He was a man of high character. Again, he's listed as one of David's mighty men, the highest possible military honor a person could have, and only about three dozen people during David's lifetime had that title. And, and one of the guys in the, story, in the stories of the mighty men, one of them personally killed 800 people one day on his own in battle. Another one only had a staff as a weapon and killed 300 people in battle one day. That's, that's the kind of person that Uriah fits into, that, that class of soldiers. He was one of David's most important men. Very loyal as David, as he comes back, he's very loyal to Joab, he's very loyal to David, he has incredible character. And I would put it this way, Uriah was the kind of man you would want your daughter to marry. If you could pick a husband for your wife, I mean, for your daughter in those days, Uriah would have been high on the list. So he wasn't a man that would have mistreated Bathsheba. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, Nathan tells the story of the rich and poor man and the relationship between the lamb who represents Bathsheba and the poor man, Uriah. And he speaks of this very tender relationship and very strong affection between them. And because of the character of Uriah and because of the relationship that they had, I would suggest that Bathsheba was more than content as the wife of Uriah and that she would have struggled strongly with the loss. For those of you who have been married and you have a good relationship, and, and as my wife has said to me in the past, I would be lost without you, put yourself in the shoes of Bathsheba, now a victim of sexual assault, whose husband is dead at the hands of the man who assaulted her. Just put those two little things together and imagine what would be going on in your mind towards this man. And yet, we have no record that she ever diminished David's person or position. And just put yourself in her shoes when David's decided to marry her. To go from a man like Uriah to a man like David. 
It doesn't sound like she had a whole lot of choice in that wedding. He just married her. Every day you see that man, there are memories that are going to flash through your head. Every day when you see that man, he's the one who killed the one you loved. And then finally, as if Bathsheba's life hasn't had enough tragedy, Bathsheba experiences the death of her baby. And that's the result of David's sin. God told David that the baby would not live. And the baby did not live in judgment of David's sin. I never understood miscarriage, really. We thought we had a miscarriage when Terry was pregnant with Alyssa. We were told that she'd had a miscarriage. Um, there's, we've, we've always wondered if there was a twin that may have been what the doctor considered to be the miscarriage. But it didn't really hit me, miscarriage didn't really hit me until my daughter, Rachel, had her first, and her second, and her third, and her fourth, and her fifth. It's heartbreaking. And I'm the grandfather and it's heartbreaking. And I can't even begin to wrap my mind around what a woman would feel to lose her baby. And some of you have been in that situation. And this baby made it to birth and died in the first few days of its life. And Bathsheba has to go forward with the loss of her child because of her husband's sin. A victim of sexual assault, now married to the man who murdered her husband, losing her first child because of her husband's sin. I don't know anything about Bathsheba's emotional or spiritual battles, but I can't imagine that this woman would have had a callous response to her child's death. But I do want to say this to you this morning, and I do want you to understand that Bathsheba, who experienced the grief of sexual assault, the murder of her husband, and the loss of her child, remained faithful to David and her God. And I, I don't understand that. She didn't simply survive all of this, and if she had just simply survived all of this, we would consider her an unusual woman. But I think if we consider her life after the birth of Solomon, we have opportunity to see what an amazing woman she was, and particularly how much she loved God. There's another story, and we don't have time to go there this morning, but there's another story in, about Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 1. David is old, he's nearing the end of his life, and one of his sons, Adonijah, has decided to declare himself king in David's place. Upon hearing of the news, the prophet Nathan goes to Bathsheba and tells Bathsheba what has happened and reminds her of the promise that God made to David that Solomon would be the next king. Interestingly, if you go back in the story, God promised to David that he would have a son who would build the temple, that David was not allowed to build the temple because he was a man with blood on his hands. But he was going to have a son that he would name Solomon because that son would bring peace, and Solomon means peace. So it appears that somewhere in there, David's told Bathsheba and David told Nathan that God had promised that Solomon would be the next king. This is before Solomon was born. This is before David uh, did anything with Solomon. And Nathan tells Bathsheba about Adonijah, that he set himself up as king, 
and encourages her to go to David. And he suggests a way to approach David and remind him of the promise. And therefore, Bathsheba approaches David. There's two things that stand out to me in the story. First, Bathsheba still believes God keeps his promises. After all that has happened, she believes that God keeps his promises. Bathsheba does not approach David as a jaded or cynical or calloused woman. She believes the promises of God. And second, when she enters the room, we're told she bowed low before David, showing him respect and honor. I just want to throw this little part of the story in. You may be familiar with this, that David, when he got old, couldn't stay warm. And, and so what did they do to try and keep David warm? They found a beautiful young woman to lay in bed with David to help him stay warm. Ladies, how would you feel about that if your husband got older and got cold? And I need another woman to keep me warm. And when Bathsheba comes in to approach David to talk to him about Adonijah and Solomon, guess who's in the room with David? The young, beautiful woman keeping David warm. Just think how you would feel inside. But when Bathsheba enters the room and comes to David, she bows low on the ground in front of him and honors him. That one little snippet of story should tell you a lot about the kind of person Bathsheba was. And there just doesn't seem to be any bitterness in Bathsheba towards the man who turned her life upside down. One more clue about Bathsheba, the kind of person she was. We know that she was the mother of Solomon, but I want you to think about and ask you, have you ever considered the influence that this mother had upon Solomon? Solomon became a bad man, but when he first became king, he was a very humble person. And, and when God came to him and said, whatever you want, I'll give to you, and having the chance to ask for anything, Solomon asks for wisdom so that he can rule the people well. That speaks to a guy who had started out pretty well. There's another story where she approaches Solomon after Solomon has become king. And when she comes into Solomon's presence, Solomon is sitting on the throne. And Solomon invites her to come up and sit by, her, by him. And he has a chair brought for her. And it's set at his right hand. And he sits and talks to her which is a massive picture of how Solomon felt about Bathsheba. He didn't get to sit at the right hand of a king unless you were a very important person to the king. And it's just this dear moment, it's just, it's just this affectionate moment where Solomon says, come here and sit with me. Don't stand down there. Come up here and sit with me. Guys, get a chair for her right here by my right hand. That was the relationship that Solomon and Bathsheba had. She had had a lot of influence on him and he was very attached to her. It's not the response of a person whose mother is angry at God and bitter. I would argue that she raised him well. And I think that how she raised him and how she influenced him comes out in a proverb. Remember Solomon wrote the Proverbs? And at the end of the Proverbs, there's one called Psalm, uh, Proverbs 31. You familiar with that? We don't have time again uh, to, to read it. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. But Proverbs 31 is the sayings of King Lemuel. And it's traditionally believed that that was simply another name for Solomon. And Solomon communicates an oracle his mother taught him. So the writer says, this is, these are the sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother spoke to him. 
It starts out with all kinds of things like don't get drunk. Don't get involved in immorality. Just lists it out. And then the Proverbs 31 woman follows that, which most people believe Solomon wrote about Bathsheba. That's the kind of woman that Bathsheba was. In spite of all that happened to her, how bitter would you be to be a victim of sexual assault? There are women that I know that have experienced it and have gone on without bitterness. And that's a work of grace in their hearts. But add to that, that to cover his sin, that man murdered your husband. And add to that, because of that man's sin, you lost your first child. And yet, when we come to the Proverbs 31 woman, we're most likely reading about Bathsheba. And thinking about her and understanding her heart, I think a question for us to ask this morning is what made the difference in Bathsheba's life? And I want to go back to where we started this morning, that I believe that Bathsheba was a woman who loved God so much that it produced a strong trust in his covenant faithfulness. There was much in Bathsheba's life that really seems unfair and horrible. Yet it appears that Bathsheba interpreted it through the lens of God's steadfast love for her. And I don't understand that. I, I know a guy that God did things in his life that it brought him to a place that he didn't want to talk about God anymore and really didn't want to have anything to do with God anymore. And that guy's situation was nothing like Bathsheba's. She was a woman who loved God and trusted in his covenant faithfulness. And she saw her life through the lens of God's steadfast love for you. And as I think about that, and as I think about this is Advent Sunday where the topic is love, I want to remind you of God's steadfast love for us in Jesus. I want us to come back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his, only, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God loved us, he sent his son to die for us. And as we read in 1 John chapter 4, John also tells us that because God first loved us, we have come to know love and we are able to love. And again, it was John who told us the words, if you love me, keep my commandments. Bathsheba is an incredible woman with an unbelievable story who remained faithful to God through all of the mess that David brought into her life. But we don't need to sit back and say, I, I want to be a Bathsheba. Bathsheba is, is just a foreshadowing of Jesus. A woman who loved a very unlovable man, and honored a man who had lost his honor, and raised a son who at least was set on the right path. And she loved God. Jesus was a man who suffered not because of his sin, but because of our sin. He suffered because of the sin of someone else. And he suffered because of the sin of someone else, not because it was forced upon him like Bathsheba, but because he willingly took it upon himself because he loved us. Bathsheba models, if you love me, keep my commandments. But Jesus kept all of the commandments. Jesus never sinned. 
He was tempted in every way that we are tempted. He experienced temptation, and yet he never sinned. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words are possible. If you love him, it is possible to obey him. And so I would just close quickly this morning by saying this. This Christmas, I would encourage you to spend intentional time meditating on the love of God. I would encourage you to communicate your love to him. And I would encourage you this Christmas to seek in the power of the Spirit to pursue Christ-like obedience in your life. You've heard me say that so many times. And I'm going to keep saying it. Love Jesus. Keep his commandments. In the power of the Holy Spirit, take the next step. And keep going forward. Let's close in prayer. Father, I'm thankful for the pictures, the stories that we have that you've given to us in your word. You moved in the hearts of the writers to relay to us stories with a lot of information that tell us about human nature and give us examples that are the exception to human nature. And Father, while there were so many good things that happened in David's life, he made some horrible choices that not only messed up his own life, but really negatively affected many other people. He watched his sons die because of his own sin and inaction. He just made horrible choices. And yet you loved him. And you've kept your promise to him that one would sit on his throne forever. And that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. And Father, I again am thankful that you use us in spite of ourselves. And that for those on whom you have set your affection, you never stop loving us. You never abandon us. You never walk away from us and say, I give up. And so, Father, I would ask you this morning to grow love in our hearts for Jesus. May we see him as our Savior and also as the kind of life that we should pursue and live. And Father, help us each day by your gracious work to choose obedience, to move forward in faith, and to grow as your children. In your son's name, amen.